the shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello. Welcome to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. This week, based on episode 5 of Only the Shit You Love, the cartoon, you asked, we listened. What's this podcast all about? Well, you asked me to crap on endlessly about the past. I listened, and so here I am, crapping on endlessly about the past. You didn't really ask but I'm doing it anyway, because that's what I always planned to do. You asked, we listened. It features the debonair stylings of Sean McAuliffe, appearing in the bridge section of the song as a somewhat over-educated, disgruntled consumer. You say we asked, but who exactly is we? We value your feedback. Is it 3,000 people? Was it three? We value your feedback. Was it people in your office who you knew would agree? We value your feedback. It's funny, I don't remember you asking me. Do you value our feedback? 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 Are you actually going to do something about our feedback? Well, will it make us more money? Not necessarily. Well, get fucked. While Tony Martin plays, well... Pretty much everyone. Because everyone has been corralled into the culture of engagement. It's not enough to produce a good or service and sell it. Now you've got to engage with the consumer. Engagement. It moved faster than the pandemic and now it's not what you do while you save up for a wedding. It's something else entirely. It's everywhere. It's even in my job title. We're all at it, engaging with people, trying to be more engaging, fussing over whether people are engaged enough. Now, it's not enough to sell you a product. We've got to be interested in you, care about you, ask your opinion. Now, when you buy five bucks worth of chips and you get home and pop on the TV and sit down to unwrap your chips... The person who made the chips is leaning in through your front window. How are those chips? Are you enjoying them? Did I serve them fast enough? Is there any way I can improve those chips? Whatever happened to good old grumpy service? Here's your chips. Fuck off out of my life. Whatever happened to the person behind the scummy little grilled window at Springvale Railway Station who looked like it was a direct personal insult to have to walk over to the window and sell me a ticket so I could get on the 8.15 stopping all stations to Flinders Street, which frankly was about to embark on its journey without me because the driver didn't give a fuck if I got on or not. Whatever happened to the Grenders bus driver on the school bus route from Merda College, Mulgrave, to Springy Station, who hated you so much that when he rolled out your tiny slip of paper ticket and slammed it in your hand, you bruised your palm, and would routinely slam shut the doors and take off as some sobbing little Year 7 boy ran up fractionally late, his little fists vainly hammering on the door to get in. Whatever happened to that bus driver? Admittedly, I don't blame him. Imagine 
getting the Merda College school bus gig. Your bus is packed like the Hillsborough soccer disaster with bacterial odour-infested adolescent boys who throw fruit out the windows and try to rock the bus off its wheels at every intersection. Once my friend Sean so annoyed the older boys on the bus, they shoved him on the muddy bus floor, covered him in a layer of school bags and stood on him all the way home, singing the Merda College school song to the tune of Baby Please Don't Go by Gary Glitter. Once or twice, a driver would actually pull over, stop the bus and order us all outside and yell at us until that little bastard who threw fruit out the window owned up. Otherwise, none of us were going home. A tense standoff would ensue until the perpetrator, under severe peer group pressure, put their hand up and was left to walk home. You wouldn't blame that bus driver. And besides, grumpy customer service was the norm. In fact, the term customer service hadn't even been invented. The person behind the grill window at Springvale Station was basically saying to you, I've got a shit life and this is my only chance to lord it over somebody lower than me on the pecking order. Because just for a few seconds when you need a ticket, I have the power. That's how it was. Not anymore though. Now everyone's fucking cheerful. Excited to see you. The pecking order remains, but now the person who works at Springvale Station is delighted to work there. Same shit job, same shit pay, once miserable, now delighted. What happened? It's the fish principle. Heard of the fish principle? Probably. It's called that because it comes from this documentary made about workers at a fish market in Seattle. They had a shit job, but they had to do it, so one of them started to pretend like they had a great job. It caught on, and suddenly it became their calling card. They joked with each other, threw fish around, sang songs. It was like entertainment. And of course, not only did it make their day seem more fun, it attracted huge crowds and their fish market stall went bananas. And I have to say, I watched the movie and I get it. It's very persuasive. It's almost a Buddhist thing. Rise above yourself, take away the ego, reduce your own significance, and your suffering will pass. So, there they are on the movie, these fish market sellers, having a fucking great time, despite the cold and the smell and the obscenely early hours. The fish principle. Of course, I originally thought fish was an acronym. Fuck, I'm so happy! It's called Choose Your Attitude. And I get it. You're suffering, so pretend you're not suffering and you won't feel like you're suffering. It makes sense, this fish principle. But don't you think there's something, well, fishy about it? Couldn't it be, in the wrong hands, how to suppress an uprising? Isn't the fish principle what Marx said about religion? You know, opium for the masses? Well, I don't know about that. I realise at this point that my arguments could be emboldening all kinds of rabid conspiracists who think the man is responsible for all their failings. So at this point, I'm stopping the bus. Conspiracists? You think government is to blame?
the capitalist corporate military industrial complex is stopping you from earning your true rewards in life. Fair enough, you're absolutely right. But if you could just hop off the bus now, thanks very much. This trip is over. Goodbye. Anyway, where was I? Oh yes, engagement. Look, I've got nothing against the whole idea of better customer service. It's fantastic. And it helps me in so many ways. I get the idea of engagement. I just don't like the pretending. It's fine to say we value your feedback. Just don't tell me you value it because you give a shit about me. You value it because it's a way for you to make more money. And that's what shits me. The pretense. Ads that pretend to not be ads. Banks that pretend to not be about money. Juice business owners who pretend to be giving the public what they want when in fact they'd give us asbestos and tonic if there was a killing to be made out of it. You make a product, I buy it. That's all I ask, not for you to care about me. Instead of saying, you asked, we listened, like I'm supposed to feel engaged with your product. Instead of going on about how you've improved your product. Because when people do that, I'm always thinking, what? So are you now admitting that your product used to be shit? Instead of trumpeting in self-congratulation about how you listen to the needs of your consumers, instead of making a giant fucking song and dance about how I am somehow involved in the decision to add ingredient X to your burger, well, how about saying this? We've added ingredient X to our burger because we think you'll buy more and we'll make more money. How about that for fucking engagement? Yes, instead of your messaging being more than money, that would be admitting it's simply more money. But you know what? At least I would trust what came out of your mouth. And isn't trust the holy grail of consumer engagement? Of course, it's all very well to whinge and moan. I'd be the first to complain if we returned to good old grumpy pre-engagement style customer service. I'm a consumer who has enjoyed many benefits of the fish principle. I even, I'm ashamed to say, enjoy the fruits of the disruption business model. Yep, disruption. Disruption is what happens when you're trying to teach a group of year eights skills that will help them lead a happier life and Adam Merritt fucks it up for everybody by spitballing. That's disruption. An objectively bad thing. That is, until it entered the vernacular of the business world, where it has become an objectively good thing. And I, dear listener, have enjoyed the fruits of this irritating business buzzword every time I've hopped in an Uber, and the car is clean and neat, and the driver is nice to me, and I don't have to waste time paying at the end of the ride, and so on. It's a pleasurable experience from start to finish. Well, except for the fact that every Uber driver puts Nova on their radio, and Nova is always playing Without You by Kid Leroy, which is the most irritating song ever written in the history of popular music. I can't believe that you would have been Fuck all of your reasons I lost my shit, you know I didn't mean it Now I see it You run and repeat But apart from that, yes, 
I am a beneficiary of disruption, of engagement, of the fish principle. So, shouldn't I shut up and stop whinging about it? Of course not. I am the consumer, and the consumer is God, correct? Producers of goods and services must sell their own grandmothers into slavery if the consumer wants it. We're all heading for fiery oblivion because the consumer is always right. And I am a consumer, and therefore I can have my cake and consume it too. Just thought I'd clear that up. Enough of me as the consumer. In this podcast, dear unfortunate listener, you are the consumer and I am the producer. And in this podcast, I just crap on about whatever the fuck I want. You didn't ask for it, I just decided to do it. Which means it's time for... Only the Bits I Love! Yes, Only the Bits I Love. Are you ready? Here we go. If you haven't spotted where that five-second bit of music comes from, it's Party Out of Bounds by the B-52s from their Wild Planet album. The B-52s are one of my favourite all-time groups. To most people, they represent rock lobster, silly wigs and party music. But I think they're one of the most underrated art bands in pop history. And that's not just me being a wanker, although I admit I am a bit of a wanker. I can easily imagine some musicologist professor type writing a book about the B-52's embodiment of the Warholian pop art trash aesthetic. But that's still just saying the B-52's are simply rock lobster and silly wigs. I actually think... The B-52s are a brilliant art band because of their music. Like two of my other most favourite bands, Elvis Costello and the Attractions and The Who, yet like very few bands in the history of pop music, each member of the B-52s contributes a distinctive and original musical personality to the sum of their parts. Kate and Cindy aren't just kooky chicks. They have magnificent voices. But their harmonies are really unusual, often quite, well, you know, jazz. Fred Schneider actually sings, even though you think he's just shouting the whole time. And the late, great Ricky Wilson plays deceptively simple, yet quite revolutionary guitar parts by removing two strings from his guitar using open tunings and perfecting a kind of lead and rhythm playing style which is also the trademark of one of my other all-time fave guitarists, Wilco Johnson of Dr Feelgood. Someone in the B-52s is playing it the conventional way, just keeping time. Not even drummer Keith Strickland, as we see in this example of Only the Bits I Love. Let's hear it again. (laughs) 
what's Keith doing? Or, more to the point, what's he not doing here? He's missed the first beat of the bar. The kick drum doesn't come in until beat two. It's complete sacrilege for a drummer to miss the first beat of the bar. It destabilises the beat, drops the bottom out, makes it sound small and thin and hesitant. Beat one of the bar, the one, as it was referred to by James Brown, who ought to know, is the most important thing in dance music. Hit the one hard and then funk about a bit until you get back to the one and hit it hard again. If you want to get a good example of the one's importance in dance music, check out The Prodigy in their heyday. They made the one so huge that in their live shows, everything else was on tape except for a kick drum sample, which prodigy one-man musical brain Liam Howlett used to fire off on the one of every bar, thus making the one doubly enormous. The rest of the time he just played lights. So, you get this boom, boom, boom. That's the power of the one, which B-52's drummer Keith Strickland removed at the start of the crucial first bar return after a breakdown. A breakdown in music is where the music takes a pause, thins out, drops tempo, gives the listener a chance to breathe, before returning all guns blazing to re-emphasise the energy and power of the beat. The first bar after a breakdown is usually the most thrilling moment in dance music. Not in this case, because Keith decides to miss a beat on the one. The first time I heard it, my natural reaction was, the drummer is a bit primitive and he fucked it up. Until we get to the second breakdown in the song, and he does it again. This shit is deliberate. And the more I listen to the song the more I loved the weediness of it. It became the bit I looked forward to in the song. He did that, Keith Strickland, and I bet he had to insist on doing it every time the band did a take of that song in the recording studio and the engineer stopped the tape and pressed the talkback button and said, "Uh, Keith, you missed the one. Can we go again? You don't have to be a drummer to appreciate this. In fact, being a drummer makes it harder to appreciate this. It's like being a mechanic who hears a badly tuned car going past. I was a drummer when I first heard this, and the more I came to appreciate it, the more I started to think maybe I wasn't cut out to be a drummer. So why did I start out as a drummer? While we're pondering that earth-shattering question, here's an early recording of me drumming in Abrols. Mind-bending stuff. So why did I become a drummer? Well, my own self-defeating personality, mainly. 
My problem was that, as a character, I didn't make sense. Highly competitive, egocentric, ambitious, vain. I had all the right personality defects for rock stardom, except for one extra that completely cancelled them all out. Crushing diffidence. I yearned to be first in line for mass adoration, yet I'd pretty much let every fucker push in front of me. In primary school, when they used to do crazy stuff like ranking every kid from first to last, I came second in class three times in a row before they banned the practice. Fair enough too, I mean, because that sort of carry-on tends to inculcate a certain impression in a young child's mind. Imagine the poor bastard who came last. So I went out into the world being really good at coming second. Even when I was the best at something, I'd find a way from the very earliest of ages. At some Peter Weir-esque Catholic parish picnic, the very young me got to experience my first proper running race. With the starter's cap gun, I burst away from the pack, way out in the clear, with only the whistling breeze to accompany me. Then I approached the tape and suddenly had no idea what to do. The tape had been so lovingly strung across the track between two poles and I didn't want to get in trouble for breaking it, so I stopped. The kid way behind me ran past, broke the tape and won. They say there are no prizes for coming second, but that day when the judges stopped wiping the laughter from their eyes, they gave me not one but two violet crumbles. Reinforcement there and then. Dizzy with a livid cocktail of frustration, relief and burnt sugar, I looked at the tape and saw my future. Leave some other kid to do that scary come-first business. Throughout teenagerhood, hell, right through life, I would always find myself teaming up with the smartest, alphaist kid on the block, whom I would never challenge. Don't break that tape. And because there were three alphas in my first band, I heard the familiar parrot on my shoulder. Up the back you go, son. So, I was the drummer. Like the last kid picked in schoolyard footy, the soccer goalkeeper, the cricket outfielder, the oats in every hall and oats, last in musical chairs sits behind the drum kit. Well, that's what we thought at the time anyway. I don't mean to denigrate the role of the drummer, which, as an aficionado of dance music and a former drummer myself, I understand now to be the starring role that it is. Steve Pay, the keyboardist in Root, and a veteran of thousands of professional gigs with thousands of professional drummers, once said to me something which really stuck. You can hide a bad guitarist, you can hide a bad bassist, you can hide a bad keyboardist, but if you have a bad singer or drummer, there's nowhere to hide. The drummer is crucial. Which is why later on I bought a drum machine. But more of that later. For now, I was choosing the least desirable position in our fledgling shot at stardom. Not because it requires less skill, not because it's less important to the sound, not because it's less cool, none of those. Nope. The reason why I thought the job of drummer was fourth in a line of four was very simple. I was destined to be furthest away, the least likely to engage with, 
the screaming girls up the front. See you next week. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash DamianCowDC. See you next time.